Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, this week, we are doing uh, a pick from Peter, and this is uh, Richard Linklater's 2006 A Scanner Darkly. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. I had never seen this before you suggested it all, which is kind of amazing because I think I've read and seen pretty much everything else that's from Philip K. Dick. Had you seen this before? No, I hadn't seen it either. I just I heard about it and I'd forgotten that Richard Linklater made it. And, and uh, it's got, by the way, we can get into this, but it's got a lot of Linklater kind of like fingerprints all over it. Yeah, it's... Um Right. Well, it's the second movie that he, you know, used computer rotoscoping on or animated um, on top of. Um, what was the first one? I'm trying to remember the name. It was one he made a couple of years before this one. Um, geez, I forget the name of it. Was, to, was oh, it, Waking I think Life. It was Waking, Waking Life. Life. Yes. Waking that's what Life, it was. which I never saw. No, I didn't see it either, but I remember seeing like the preview or something. And so he'd done that before, which is funny because apparently they had a lot of trouble in post-production. And you'd think if he did it before, it would have gone more smoothly, I guess. Yeah, they had. I, I read that they had to up the budget to get the thing done because it was so labor intensive. Right. I mean, I imagine that, you know, that's the thing about a computer animation you know, when you picture the guys back in, you know, the era of Fantasia and Disney sitting there with tracing paper and celluloid, clear celluloid and, and you know, pencils, um, I don't think using computers speeds thing up very, you know, speeds things up very much. I think they're just, their medium's different, but their time commitment's probably pretty similar. Yeah, I don't know, though, but, you know, this is what they call interpolated rotoscoping. Right, which means it's supposed to the um, software is supposed to help you in between, you know, not do every single frame. Right, you do every other frame, and the software does the in between. It actually came out of the Media Lab. Yeah, but it still took him like some ridiculous hundreds of hours per minute. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, I mean, any animation, but uh, but anyway, but this came out of the Media Lab that you were you used to always talk about the Media Lab up at MIT. Yeah. So a guy named Bob Sabiston invented this process. Right. Um, which, by the way, like you can recognize from um, those Charles Schwab commercials. Like when I was watching this, I was like, oh, it looks like those Charles Schwab commercials that they use the same technique for. Well, let me go back further to a, a, a greater 80s reference. Um, Aha, take on me. Remember that video? Right. But that wasn't, that wasn't computerized rotoscoping, was no. it? No. I doubt it. It was probably yeah, manual, I can't but it was still same uh, same thing, just older technology. I heard the I heard the word rotoscoping for the first time ever when we were kids, because the lightsabers in Star Wars: A New Hope are rotoscope, and I remember like watching a how they did it kind of show, and they That's right. sort of explained how the lightsaber effect was animated in frame by frame. Right, but I guess rotoscoping is a really really old idea like rotoscoping as an idea is like it's basically a hundred years old yeah i mean it's probably one of the original special effects in a way because he just draw on the film essentially yeah it's invented by a polish guy named max fleischer 
um, and used basically like right away. They started using it for uh, scenes in movies and cartoons. Like very, very quickly, they realized that you could capture a very realistic human motion in cartoons as opposed to like, um, you know, Steamboat Willie um, by rotoscoping. So like by the 30s, for example, they were using a lot of rotoscoping in cartoons. But anyway, we're getting off track. Um, I, Plus, I dare there's, you. There's, there's no way I a guy named Max Fleischer. summarize is, this movie now, by the way. By the way, a guy named Max Fleischer, Polish? Come on. <laughs> um, anyway. Go ahead and try to summarize this thing. because It's like, a nice, I'm, simple one. I'm going to time you. <laughs> I'm just going to say this is a classic Philip K. Dick paranoia story. That's pretty much the best summary. So, all right, let me give it an attempt here. So, the movie's about Bob Arctor, who's a he's an undercover sheriff's uh, narcotics officer who is assigned to surveil, surveil himself. This he also is addicted to the drug substance D that is what they're trying to stop in society because it's incredibly prevalent and. Um, in the end, it kind of turns out that he his the own his own cop supervisors have sort of used him as a sacrificial lamb to get him to become totally psychotic from substance D and get stuck in incredibly paranoia paranoiac Philip K. Dick fashion to get sent without his knowledge to a farm where the recovery. Um, company i guess it's it's a company um is growing is actually making making the plant it's basically making the drug substance d to get everyone addicted to cause them to go to recovery so they they control everything and they need somebody to go undercover and really actually get burnt out and psychotic without their knowledge to go there and attempt to try to expose the whole thing and that's what's sort of revealed in the end but you watch him descend without being aware of that till the last few minutes of the movie. I mean, it's a, I mean, the central conceit is that he's, you know, he's hired to, to survey himself. Correct. Right. And the woman who hires him is the woman that he's essentially surveying. He doesn't realize that in surveying himself and the woman he's surveying, he's actually surveying his boss who is hiring him to do the surveillance in the first place. So like the entire movie is a great big sort of circle jerk. Yeah, and you don't know that it's a woman. You don't know who's who. The only thing you know is that he is strangely watching himself, which is is it creates enough tension that you sort of see him start to go nuts, basically over the course of the movie. And even in the even early in the movie, there are you know there there's explicit discussion about the fact that he's using a lot of substance D, the drug in question. And he's having difficulty interpreting reality. And for example, like the scene where he's shown sort of like the sort of like the their version of like the Rorschach test and he he fails conspicuously. Right. Although I have to say I I, I didn't feel like Keanu Reeves I didn't feel like he he the movie itself is is it seems pretty in keeping with the feeling of craziness um uncertainty um discombobulation that is supposed to be dissociation dissociation right but 
I don't think that, I don't think you, Keanu Reeves really sort of manifests that very well. No, he the, just, he just looks sort of like, you Tired. know, he's playing like a sort of like more fatigued version of Bill and Ted. <laughs> <laughs> or Neo. He's like a tired Neo. <laughs> but you know, the movie, like, it took me a while to realize the movie is not really about him. The movie, I mean, the star of the movie is essentially Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> I mean, Robert <laughs> Downey Jr. Of- basically steals every single scene that he is in. <laughs> but you say that about any movie with Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and it's funny because Robert Downey Jr. is playing, like, you know, a messed up drug addict. <laughs> He's yeah, he's playing Robert Downey Jr. Right, right. And it's I mean, kind he, of so is Woody Harrelson, kind of playing Woody Harrelson. I know. And the, and, and the, Winona, the stoner Winona in it, the stoner guy. Um is that Rory Cochran? Yeah, he's the stoner guy in uh Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Like he's kind of and a Winona, late ladder holdover. Like he's Winona kind of Ryder playing he's kind of playing a more grown up version of the character he played in Dazed and Confused. She doesn't shoplift anything, though. Yeah, right. And Winona Ryder is playing kind of a like they're all kind of playing themselves. I actually really like Winona Ryder. Um, I'm kind of very forgiving of her excesses because I think she's good on screen. Have you ever seen, by the way, the video of her shoplifting? I think I did. It's on YouTube. It's it's her or some other person. No, it's her. Um, and, no, you know, no. I mean, I'm not sure what I saw. Oh, oh, was oh, oh. I, well, I've seen the video of her shoplifting, and it's unquestionably her. Like when you watch the video, you're like, "That's Winona Ryder," and she steals a bunch of stuff from the store, and she runs out into the street, and they just like swarm her and bring her back into the <laughs> store. Sort of, it really kind of like it derailed her career for a decade. That event. Uh, I think it more than that. I, I think she never came back. That's like really? Sean Young showing up, uh, you know, dressed as a cat woman, you know, like it was so over the top that it like it damaged her career. Uh, but yeah, they're all kind of playing themselves in this. Well, I mean, they all worked at scale. What do you expect? You get what you Did they work for. at scale? Yeah. I mean, the movies, a, this is an indie film. Yeah. I mean, it cost nothing to make. I mean, they made the whole movie for less than $10 million. You know, it's supposed to be, um, there's supposed to be in Anaheim, but it just looks like Texas. Like when I was watching this, I was like, there's no way this wasn't filmed in Texas. Like, well, Link later shoots everything. Right. But it it doesn't look like Anaheim. And like the scenes, for example, where, where Woody Harrelson is sitting up the tree, that, that, that doesn't look like a California tree. That's a Texas tree. Um, they did shoot some outside outdoor stuff in uh, Anaheim, I think. Mm, it's interesting. So they went and they did some exterior stuff, but but uh, anyway, and they shot it, they made the movie really cheaply, I think most of the money, because they shot it on a digital camera, on digital video. And then because the movie was, was going to be animated, um, they didn't have the same concerns for production, really, that you'd have in a normal film. So the their cost of actual shooting with live action was way less. But, you know, the post-production budget was enormous and it took them like two years or a year and a half to do the post-production. The scramble suit is the great, it's like the great concept of the whole movie, I think. 
Yeah, well, it uh, it's the anonymizer, right? Well, and so it's it's, it's realized in a very effective way, and you know, even to the point that they, you know, it changes your voice. Right. You know, although I'm not quite sure why it really has to shift all the time, but anyway, well, I, I think it's because the, the computers the are constantly watching them. You know what I'm saying? Through all the cameras, like they show the, they show the cameras can sort of right. like lock in on and identify anybody. Right. That's the scanner, <laughs> you know? So, right. And they, cause when he sits, when they have him uh, go to a workstation to go watch himself and surveil himself, it's like workstation number 8 million, you know, whatever. It's like some huge number implying that they're just tons. And they, they, they show a few scenes where they're, they're just banks upon banks of people surveilling. So it's a, it's a very frightening dystopian society besides drug addiction with this powerful um, drug that has addicted 20% of the population. You also have people watching everything everywhere. With ease, right? With uh, incredible sophistication. I mean, this must be the most Philip K. Dick of Philip K. Dick novels and movies. That was my my feeling is the movie, even though I don't think that Keanu Reeves nailed it. I feel like the movie nailed it. It really nailed. It really nailed Philip K. I Dick. felt like I was I was like in a Mobius strip, you know, just like going around and around and around and twisting and turning, coming back to the beginning and just sort of going in circles, watching it plot wise. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really is disorienting to watch, and and the the technique of you know using rotoscoping makes it disorienting because you're watching something that's. It's reality, but it's not reality. So the the technique when you're watching the film is describing the sort the uncertainty of the situation just in technique. It echoes it. Yeah, no, I I definitely think so. Um, you know, this book is written at a, at a time when he is really messed up in his life. Yeah, I think he was ODing on amphetamines. uh, He's on amphetamines, and he was living with addicts, and he was divorced, or in the process of divorcing, and in and out of therapy. And I mean, you know, I know that you and I have sort of debated on this podcast before, like what was Dick's actual diagnosis? But I mean, I mean, I mean, he's, I mean, we've sort of speculated in the past maybe he was schizophrenic, or maybe he was bipolar. But I mean, he was too functional. I was reading about a lot of the stuff that sort of happened to him in the period of which he was writing this book and i mean he is really really you know he has a very tenuous grasp of reality he probably just was you know he was probably just a guy who was neurotic and who self-medicated and medicated himself to the extent that you know i mean maybe he was bipolar i don't know because he did write a ton of books so he was able to be you know so productive maybe when he was manic and that's the only thing I can think of. But otherwise, he just probably got nuts from self-medicating. I mean, he probably took so many amphetamines that he started getting psychotic. And he was taking all sorts of stuff on top of his mental illness. Right. Yeah. Did you read about, by the way, <clears throat> at around the time or in the era that he's writing this book, he has this paranormal experience with this woman who comes to his door? Have you heard about this? Um. So... No. So he he was getting he had a dental problem. He got treated with sodium pentothal by a dentist. 
And then he, a woman came to his house to deliver him medications, pain meds. And he opens the door and he sees this unbelievably beautiful woman. And she is wearing a golden necklace in the shape of a fish. Um, and then he believed that a pink beam of light reflected off the girl's necklace and imparted him with clairvoyance. Sounds reasonable. Um, right, right. And, and he uh, and he saw this pink beam more than once that sometimes it would tell him things. And like, for example, on one occasion, the pink beam told him that his child was ill. So like, I mean, this is this all that happened in sort of 74. And, you know, he writes this in 77. And a lot of this is sort of, it's got to be heavily influenced by his state in the sort of the 70s, his drug use, etc. I mean, I know when I read that, I read that bit about, you know, the beam of light carrying information to him. I mean, that sounds fairly schizophrenic, but who knows? Yeah, but no schizophrenic is that functional. Like none of them I know. Well, I can't get past this. He had a couple of wives. I can't get past that. Yeah, a whole uh, bunch. You know, how, how many schizophrenics get married? Five times. He was able to close the deal five times. There's, there's no anyway. way. I mean, you know, you can be psychotic and be bipolar, right? So that's more likely. Yeah, and bipolar people tend to sort of be more successful way uh, more. dating wise. Well, they're way more but, functional. You know, it just makes you, and you can be psychotic. You can be psychotic and uh, manic at the same time, but it's just interesting. Um, so here's a question I have. Is this movie any fun? I think it's funny. Um, yeah, that's generous. <laughs> I don't know. I think. Well, I think it's got tongue in cheek, right? I think the movie, it has a, it's nutsy and it's a little, it's a little humorous, you know, like, in some ways, because right, like like Total Recall was a little humorous, but not in a not in the Philip K. Dick way, but rather sort of no, in the Paul Verhoeven way, right? And Arnold. I mean, way. all the, the I mean, the humor in the all the humor in Total Recall, the Arnie version is from Verhoeven. And for example, right. none of that humor is in the short story we can remember it for you wholesale. Right. The short story is a very very dry, straight, very brief story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I made me wonder, like, if Linklater was the right director for this. Like, he was interested in Dick, and he was interested in you know adapting one of his novels. But I don't know if if this really plays to his strengths. Like, for example, if you watch, um, you know, Dazed and Confused, or uh, even Boyhood, you know, that really plays to his strengths. I don't know if this is his cup of tea. I don't know. I mean, it. so it has some rambling parts where they let them, where you get to watch like the, the housemates, um, you know, um, Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson. Winona Ryder. And, and, right. and, and particularly and, um, and Keanu Reeves be paranoid and sort of attack each other and just be a, you know, stoners. They're, well, they're totally su- right. They're supposed to be like a bunch of druggies hanging out all you know, the and time. Like, none of their relationships are healthy. They're just sort of the people that they do drugs with. Yeah. And they're all stoned all the time on various drugs. And, 
they're goofy and it's not that interesting to watch them be stoned, but there are multiple scenes like that, right? That's sort of, so it, it wanders in that way. And, you know, his movies are a little wandery. Um, so it wanders in that way. But other than that, I think that it's on a track, you know, the, the thing, the movie does have a trajectory. And in the end, when the truth quote is revealed, it pulls it together reasonably well. I don't know if I agree with you there because the the movie is based on the conceit that they're trying to get him stoned that he goes like so damaged that he has to go um you to know rehab. to the what's it called new pathway new path, rehab yeah new, new path. path right he goes to rehab and they're kind of counting on the fact that enough of his cop instincts will survive that he'll figure it out and report back and then there's that sort of scene where he does you know, see the flowers at the end and and steal some. But, I mean, that's a big stretch for them to think that this is the way that they're going to uncover this. Well, I think they're desperate. And they, they say that, you know, they sort of say that there's no, they've found no other way to do it. And they so they had to take somebody who was unaware and truly make them overdose on the drug. And, uh, I think that they, they, they're taking a flyer that, that it'll work. You know, they know it may not work. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, I will tell you that it was, it was a big stretch for me, the end. Like, like, all that for this, like, I had a lot of trouble buying it, but even in the context of a Philip K. Dick movie. Really? I don't know. I By the way, did you notice the guy? Remember reasonable. when he's out and he sees the flowers, the guy who comes up to him and talks to him about it? Remember that at the end when he's in the corn and he sees the flowers and the guy yeah, comes yeah, up and they yeah. talk. I think that's the same guy who played Patricia Arquette's second husband um, in Boyhood. The okay. sort of the the drunk guy who beat her. I think that that's the same actor. It's a little hard to tell just from the the rotoscoping, but I think it's the same guy. Yeah. So so you didn't. So you weren't convinced in the end. Uh, I thought that I I thought it was I think the conceit that they hire him to spy on himself is terrific. I think the scramble suit is a great idea. And I like the idea that the Winona Ryder character is actually his boss in a scramble suit all along. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's sort of like, you know, like the snake biting its tail. Like it's just going in a circle and a circle and a circle. And I thought that was great. But at the end, it's almost like it's it's too far fetched a plan for them, you know, and, and it well, gives it this sort of silly ending because he's supposed to be so far gone that he, you know, doesn't even argue and they give him a new name, Bruce, yet he remembers he's a cop. Well, I don't think he does. I think they're hoping that. But, but he took the flowers. He took the flowers like he was going to. He takes the flowers. Back. But he says something like, I'm going to show this to my friends. So I think he doesn't even fully realize why he takes the flowers. And I think he has, it's like they said, you know, he has two neurons left that maybe maybe they'll fire. And so I think in the end, he does it, but he's not conscious of why he's taking it, the flower. That was the impression I got because he says, I'm going to show this to my friends. Hmm. And so... I think he takes the flowers, but I don't think he's really fully purposeful. It seemed like he he does it out of some instinct, but doesn't. F- it's subconscious, and it's left open as to the fact or whether or not he actually does 
the plan works or not, you never know. And it doesn't actually matter if you know. Right. And it's months ahead because he's so isolated at that farm that, uh, you know, they say you get to leave twice a year. Right. For the big holidays. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It, you know, it didn't, it lost money. Like uh, it, uh, it came in under budget and you could see how, you know, like if you didn't know a lot about Phil K. Dick or this wasn't your cup of tea, if you walked into this, you know, after half an hour of the rotoscoping, you might be like, what are we doing here? I don't, I just don't think you're going to get people to go. So this movie inherently is, is a, is a cult film. I mean, Linklater's movies are a little like that in general when they're live action, but you take one of his movies and you rotoscope it. And I don't think there's no way it's ever going to be a big budget picture or even, even more than a tiny budget picture. It's never going to really sell a lot. Not in the it's US. interesting that the rotoscoping technique in this didn't really take off. Like you can do it. Um, there's a bunch of software programs that you can buy and and do this much more sort of cheaply now. Like you can you can you know take a piece of film and sort of have uh, a software program sort of do a, a quick and dirty rotoscoping on it. But I'm surprised that there aren't more movies done like this because it does allow you to get around. Uh, get around some stuff and it, it, for example it would free you up in terms of all sorts of set building and background because the rotoscoping would kind of make a cheap set look good you know what i mean but i guess it doesn't well i mean that when they it's cg some aspects of cgi quote they do that you know yeah did you ever see heavy metal of course because the b17 section in that i believe is rotoscoped do you remember mm. that? That remember that little story. That's where the B seventeen crashes, yeah. Um, and then the uh, it's sort of partially crashed by the the glowing sphere referred to as the Loch Nahr, uh, and then all the crew <laughs> becomes zombies. Yeah, um, I kind of remember but that. That, that segment is is rotoscoped, and I think some of the um, the John Candy story in that den uh, about the little wimpy kid who becomes like the muscle bound guy. Um, I believe that there's rotoscoping in that, although I don't think all the segments have rotoscoping, but I think Harry Canyon, Dan, and the B-17 do for sure, but maybe more of it does. But it, the rotoscoping there is very obvious. Mm. I bet you heavy metals sort of lost obscurity at this point. I don't know. You know, it's funny because I still, every once in a while, I will see on like uh, on Fandango, uh, I will see it playing at, like as a midnight movie somewhere. Actually, the first time Ira saw heavy metal was at a midnight showing. I'm pretty sure. I really liked it. I remember like just being blown away by it because I had never really seen adult animation before. Yeah. Um, I mean, it came out in 81, but I don't think I saw it till more like 84, 85 when it was sort of like, you know, as a, it had become sort of like a midnight movie, sort of like Rocky Harwood play at midnight. And uh, I remember just being really, really impressed by it. I remember I came home, I told my dad about it. And then we got on video and we watched with my dad like the next day or two. I remember seeing it on video. But rotoscoping, I mean, it gives it, it can give it sort of a neat look that sort of regular hand-drawn animation can't necessarily get. But are there other movies that have been, uh, I'm sort of curious if there have been other, sort of big movies that use this technique in the in the sort of recent era. 
I know that some anime films use it, but uh, that's a little bit of a different, uh, a little bit of a different market. Well, animation is not. I just, it's not generally very palatable. I think, not in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, not not for adults. Right. You know, Pixar. in Asia they make a lot a lot of anime in Asia is explicitly made for adults. Um whereas in the US almost no no animated movies are made for adults. Right. I mean the only they, they Pixar makes and Dreamworks, right? They make films that are kid films that are adult friendly. Right, but, exactly. I mean I've seen I've seen tons of Pixar movies and they're almost always very watchable. No, sometimes they're downright great. But um it's it's still it's a different market. It's nothing like this. You don't see a lot of Pixar, Phil K. Dick, you know, movies. Well, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that I think about it, I've often thought of a lot of sci-fi books that maybe couldn't be done live action would make great animated movies. Like, did you ever read uh, Footfall by Larry Niven? It's Niven and Pornell. About yeah, intelligent pachyderms uh, that invade the Earth and it ends in a sort of climactic space battle where the humans uh, build a nuclear rocket and basically, uh, you know, make this sort of ungainly spaceship to go up and attack the mothership or the aliens. And like when I read that, I thought this would be a fantastic animated uh, film for adults. Like they could really pull a lot off. Um. What was I going to say? Yeah, it's interesting that Robert Downey Jr. chose to play a drug addict at a time that he was resurrecting his career and getting out of being a drug addict himself. Was this during that period, or was this? It's uh, afterwards. So he kind of like I think like the peak of his uh, drug stuff is like two thousand, two thousand one, and then he sort of like drops out for a while. Like he sort of disappears for like four or five years. And then he comes back in a couple of things uh, right around this time. But it's sort of interesting that at a time when he's known for his sort of drug recidivism, that he ended up playing this character. I mean, it's either, it's either brave or strange, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Well, he probably just knew nobody was going to see it. Uh, maybe, or maybe, maybe it was a way for him to sort of work with uh link ladder. I mean, by the way, did you did you ever see Weird Science? He's one of the he's one of the sort of uh, sort of yep. bad boys in Weird Science. Yep, I remember um, that. Uh, I don't know. Like, it, I, honestly, this was a tough one for me. Like, I watched it. Like, I'm glad I saw it. I don't know if I want to watch it again. Oh, you I know, and like for it. example, when we talked about um, Children of Men. You know, that kind of wasn't such a fun watch, but I thought about it a lot afterwards, and I ended up going back and watching a bunch of the scenes of it again. Uh, even though it's kind of not fun, it's sort of interesting. Like, this was, I don't know, like, I may just kind of put this one on the shelf. I don't know. I feel the opposite. I actually like this better. I think this You movie, like this better than Children of Men? Yeah. Because this movie, because I think this movie gets that, it gets... It's it doesn't perfectly get, but it, it gets really close to the vibe in a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah, no, that's what I mean when I said like this is the most Philip K. Dick of all the Philip K. Dick movies based on yeah. based on his works. Right, I agree, but but that's hard to do. Like, I, it's very hard to do that in a, in a movie. That's that vibe, you know, because when you're reading a novel, 
the the language pulls you in and it, it's it's intimate right it's more intimate in many ways than watching a movie watching a movie is sort of um you know it's it's a it's not the same experience i think it's harder to get pulled into the author's brain it's hard to get pulled into the director the filmmaker's brain in a movie than it is in a novel and i feel like this one kind of gives you the feeling of reading a philip k dick novel yeah no without a doubt without a and doubt and the ending you know what's what's the one he wrote where um i can't remember the title but it's an, it's, an, it's an earlier novel has i think he wrote in the 50s about the guy who lives in this idyllic town and nothing really quite seems right he kind of has a crush on his neighbor and he solves these puzzles every day and mails them in and that's how he makes his money hmm, i don't remember and um and then, it, you know, it, it has the same kind of twist in the end, right? That's the Philip K. Dick twist. You know, in the end, he's basically solving these codes that are predictive of where nuclear strikes from the enemy are going to come. <laughs> of you course. Know, and, they ha- and he lost He lost it, so they had to make this town to keep him kind of with it enough that it, so that he could. he's a genius and he can keep writing these codes. You know, it's, it's basically the completely paranoiac underpinnings of an idyllic 50s American town. I'll tell you one thing though, like you got to give Linkletter credit. Like he he has range. Like the guy who made Days and Confused also made Beavis and Butthead, Do America, School of Rock, Bad News Bears. Mm-hmm. Right, that's uh, impressive. Boyhood, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like this is no, real range. Boyhood. Like there's not a lot of you haven't seen it. No. It's really good. Like it's 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 actually as good as it was made out to be. That might be an interesting podcast sometime. Uh, but Boyhood is really really well done. Like it's like it's like three hours. It's super long. I remember when I was watching it, I just felt like it went by in an eye blank. It's 165 minutes, right. um, and I just felt like like boom, it was over. Like it was really good. Um, it's it's kind of like he kind of did what Kubrick wanted to do. Uh, for Kubrick's AI, you know, like for AI, Kubrick wanted to use the little boy from Jurassic Park and film him for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes every year for a decade or so. Right. And then he ended up not really being able to sort of finish that, obviously. But that's kind of what he did is he took this boy um, and he basically films this kid over a, a very, very long period of time. It's really interesting. The kid's got a funny name. His name is L.R. Salmon or L.R. Coltrane, I guess is his stage name. But <laughs> he films this kid for like a decade, and that's, that's how they make the movie. It's a great conceit. Right. If you get a chance, you should see, uh, you should see uh, Boyhood. Yeah. Uh, and, and Patricia Arquette is in it, and I really, really like Patricia Arquette. Right. Um, wow. I don't know. Like, it's impressive. Like, the guy's definitely got, uh, he's definitely got some range going on. Um, but and I'll be curious what he does next. Um, he, I, I think he made he made a movie last year that uh, was really, really highly reviewed that didn't do well. He made a this baseball movie called Everybody Wants Some that I really wanted to see, and it never ever played anywhere. And it was made on a budget of ten million, and it grossed four point six million. Hmm. Uh, about a sort of about high school, saw college baseball players in Texas in the 80s, but uh, just went nowhere. 
Interesting. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he feels like, you know, I'll make a big, bu- I'll make a big budget movie every couple of years so that I can do these other movies that I really care about. Hmm. A friend of mine was in that, uh, that baseball movie, which is why I wanted to see it. But anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know. Like interesting. Yes. Just to get back to scanner darkly. Interesting. Yes. Fun. No. Hmm. It's not exactly a popcorn movie. <laughs> well, uh, it's hard to make. I mean, it's Philip K. Dick's tough in general. No, he is. But I mean, like, I don't know. I kind of feel like, and I, I think I've said this before in the podcast. I almost wonder if this follows the book too closely, you know? Hmm. And I always kind of feel like if you're going to do if you're going to turn a book into a movie or a book into a TV show, don't do it exactly the same. You know what I'm saying? And like, for example, like Verho, you could argue that Verhoeven's total recall is better than Dick's in the right. sense that it's, it's a more sort of fleshed out idea with more sort of wrinkles and it's more of a ride. Whereas, whereas the short story, you know, just kind of, it just kind of like raises a lot of questions. And at the end you're left sort of like, you know, with your eyebrows up in the air you know, and or for example, have you read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that's very different than the movie. And they're both good, but, you know, the book wasn't a runaway bestseller. The movie was considered, you know, one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. Like, no, the, know, maybe the book, this was, that's not his greatest. Maybe this book. was too close, though. Maybe this was too close uh, to the book for me. I don't Time know. out of joint. I think that's the one. That's oh, the, the one, one we were thinking about, the, about earlier. Yeah, the one in the fifties. Yeah. Have you ever seen Imposter? That's one of the that's one of the few Philip K. Dick movies I haven't seen. That's the one with um uh Gary Sinise. I'd like to see that at some point. I haven't seen it. <laughs> the Philip K. Dick story is of uh, the same name. I wonder what you know, because Philip K. Dick, he died in, I think, 82, right? He, I know he saw a rough cut of Blade Runner right before right, it came yeah, out. Yeah, I think he right. kind of gave like some sort of approval of Blade Runner. Right, he said it was like looking inside his head or something. But, you know, I wonder what he'd think because the guy was just so much more successful after his death. I mean, he's not quite up with Vincent Van Gogh, you know, in terms of <laughs> right, like right. post-posthumous you know, no success. No great artist but... is appreciated in his lifetime, except for <laughs> William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but i mean dick I mean, the guy there's not even a comparison i mean he was a struggling dime store you know pulp right. fiction writer drug addicted in and out of the psych hospital married five times right and then after i mean the guy i mean can you imagine how much money he would have made as a screenwriter if, writer if he'd lived another 30 years oh yeah but you know, I mean, it wasn't his time. I mean, he you know he made his he made his money writing for you know monthly science fiction magazines. Yeah, and that scribbling out a it. bunch of books. Yeah, yeah, and he would write you know sixty pages a day on amphetamines. <laughs> well, that's how he could write sixty pages a day. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's like that old Robin Williams joke about the trucker <laughs> taking too much speed. I gotta get these pineapples, these pineapples to Hawaii. To Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> I, know, I always remember that line i don't know I, I guess my point is maybe science fiction is left uh left in other hands than link ladder overall because i really like him but i i just don't think that this is his forte 
I, I mean, this basically felt like, you know, a movie set in Texas with sci-fi themes set in Austin. Well, yeah. I don't know. But, but the book probably, the book's kind of like that, I think. You know, I mean, he, that's sometimes what Dick writes. I know what you're saying. Maybe it shouldn't. They, they should have made it a little more spicy, but I don't know. Aside from Keanu Reeves being a little bit too uh, Neo, tired Neo, um, I liked it otherwise, I think. Yeah, All right. I th- well, I think definitely you liked it more than I did, but uh, yeah. that's okay. That's it was your pick. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I bet we do tend to like our picks more. I don't know. I didn't see know? it before, though. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, but maybe you were more excited about it going in. No, I, I don't even All like right. animation. <laughs> uh, you don't like animation? I like yeah. animation a lot. I don't have much patience. I don't for know. It like, anymore. I feel like if animation is done right, I mean, now we're living in this era where every last goddamn thing is done with computers. But I mean, like. I don't know, like, I'm, I was very, like, into animation as a kid and, like, stuff like Star Blazers and Battle of the Planets, you know, like, really, really affected me. Like, I was really into that as a kid. I don't know. I've always liked anime. I think it's part of why, for example, like, I don't think you read a lot of graphic novels, but I read a lot of graphic novels, which is probably sort of an offshoot of me liking cartoons and, and animation as a kid. I used to love it. I think I just turned into a crotchy old man. <laughs> did you like star trek the animated series <laughs> wait you got you, you, which is funny because there's so little actual motion that it, it almost doesn't merit the term animation right there's like it's like one frame per minute well it, it, it's done in this unbelievably cheap way the, the company that made it was filmation do you remember filmation yeah um, it was funny because my brother and I, like, even when we were like super little tykes, we weren't sure that that was real Star Trek. <laughs> like, <laughs> like before we knew what canon was, we were kind of right. like, I don't know if this counts, you know, right. like this episode of, of, uh, the animated series. Well, I mean, it's on Saturday morning. Well, frankly, you know, you were already a Star Trek expert when you were eight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right, should we wrap there? Let's. All right, man. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you next time.